Hello everyone, I'm Lucy Woods, partner at Barton Wilmore. Welcome to BW Uncutting Conversation, Season 2, Episode 2. COP26 has sought to bring governments together from across the world to discuss and debate the global response to climate change and the tangible commitments and actions that are required. The Glasgow Climate Pact was adopted and Bacchus said that it would keep just within reach of limiting global heating to within 1.5 degrees centigrade. But all the hard work really starts now. One of the main outcomes of COP was widespread acknowledgement that early action by 2030 is vital in stopping climate change just spiralling further out of control. However, there has been some kicking the can down the road. Countries have agreed to meet next year in Egypt to have another look at increasing ambition on cutting emissions, as science says that 1.5 degrees is not achievable with the existing commitments. Next year, we'll bring an a- begin an annual process of revising national emissions targets. Other outcomes focus on research and funding for the most vulnerable communities, the COP26 health programme and a 2022 action plan for the transition towards zero emission vehicles. But how do the topics and decisions made at this hugely important international conference impact the built environment sector? And beyond this, what are we seeing as the immediate priorities for our industry in response to this humanitarian crisis? We've assembled a fantastic panel of participants for today's podcast, and I'll go around the room now and ask them to introduce themselves. So firstly, over to Gemma. Do you want to go first? Hi, I'm Gemma Kinnear, and I go to Samurai Academy in St Albans, and I'm currently in sixth form in year 12. Great, thank you. Nicola? Hello. Uh, I'm Nicola Hugo. I'm also in Samuel Ryder Academy in year 12 with Gemma. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for giving up your time. It's great to have some of the current and future generations talking to us about this absolutely critical topic. Um, Emily, would you mind going next? Hi, I'm Emily Hamilton. I'm head of ESG for Savills Investment Management. We're a global investment real estate manager looking after circa 20 billion of assets under management. And thank you very much for having me today. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, Gavin, do you introduce yourself? Oh, you're on mute. Hello, I'm Gavin Bridge. My business is Spatia. We plan and deliver sustainable neighbourhoods, future fit workspaces and low and zero carbon homes. I'm based in Bristol. Thanks very much, Gavin. And um, last but not least, over to my colleague, Barry. Thanks, Lucy. Yeah, Barry Williams, uh, Urban Design and Master Planning Partner. Uh, for Barton Wilmore in Bristol. Great. Thanks very much. Um, Okay, well, just to open the conversation, really, I'm interested in hearing from Nicola and Gemma first about what aspects of the climate change crisis concerns you the most? Um, I'd certainly say on my end, the increase in natural disasters that we're seeing globally across the world is definitely one of my mainest concerns. Um, It almost has become unnatural by the amount that we're yeah, that was my input into it. Um, mine's more the effect that climate change is having on the oceans and the actual environments within that, mm. as that's something I'm passionate about. That's what I want to go into in the future, and just how just the change in temperature by ever so slightly has such a drastic impact. Okay, great. <clears throat> Thanks very much. Um, so just. From that, really, just moving to COP, I mean, Emily, you, you were there. I think, you know, no one else on the call was. Would you best tell us a bit about your experience? 
sure. So I went up for Cities and Built Environment Day. I got the sleeper train from London Euston to Glasgow. And it was an incredible experience to be there in terms of seeing the real energy and commitment by so many people for wanting to get you know, at least a 1.5 degree scenario um, on the way. And I think what really struck me is that although there is huge amounts of action happening, it still feels quite divisive in terms of how that action is being brought together. So an example of that is that the blue zone of COP, which is where all of the international negotiations and the big finance and billionaires um, were all sort of gathering, they were very much separated from the green zone, which was over the other side of the river, um, which was then where the public and lots of community activities and lots of different um, really cool business initiatives were happening. So I, I personally found, found that quite difficult because I think we need to be coming together much more and sort of seeing that sort of divisiveness just echoed in what you're already seeing in terms of the global north and the developing south and the inequality there. So that was one of the key, key things. I thought, actually, I mean, taking your point, I actually thought the whole thing was a sort of process of separation in some ways. You know, I think when, when I, my, my overriding sort of view of COP was one of, on the one hand, sort of disappointing that some of the, you know, the big emitters, Russia, China, India, you know, didn't really go far enough, didn't commit enough in my, in my mind, you know, in, in, you know, they didn't, they haven't committed to any methane reduction, for example. Um, there, so there was that, but also actually, I felt on the other side, I actually felt quite proud of the of the UK. First, for, first of all, that we we're actually staging COP twenty six and hosting and trying to lead, I think, through some of the commitments that we've got already. Um, you know, our commitment to net zero by twenty fifty. Um, you know, Boris's ten point green plan, his green industrial revolution. You know, and all the things that are perhaps more detailed and more relevant to the development business around future home standards, future building standards. So I find it, I found it also a sort of point of separation from that. A bit, bit disappointing that some of those big emitters didn't commit more, but actually quite proud of the UK and the way that we're trying to deal with uh, climate change because we're quite small. You know, our influence is quite yeah. small in the glo on the global stage, but we're still, I think, trying to lead the way. So I thought that was very interesting. Our, our economy is, is big, though, and I don't think we necessarily are doing enough in that space. Yeah, I agree, Emily. I think, 100%. for me, uh, COP was a bit of a flop, if I can say that. <laughs> I'm also a bit floppy, anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we're talking about the built environment here, and, you know, who's best placed to kind of set the pace and set the change on a built environment? How many housing ministers have we gone through over the years? You know, um, it seems to be changing every 12, 15 months. So for me, it's for the investment community, uh, for designers, for developers, pension fund managers. We're the ones that can make real change. We need to make change faster than we ever have done before. And that's a real struggle. You know, um, we were talking earlier about that's one of the things that I find really attractive about younger people is they will embrace change and they will will try things out and they will, you know, will try it. It doesn't work, we'll change it. Whereas kind of the older generation that typically still makes the decisions around investment and, and about development it is reluctant to change. Now, I think it is about balance, but, you know, I find that with moment development activities, you know, let's try and let's try and embrace change. The more we do, the more quickly, the more useful we'll get to that. 
you know, I think, and I'm, I'm really kind of positive about that. And um, for me, it's all about property and investment, making the change. There will, it's a carrot stick, you know, there, there are going to be companies, and I won't name them, but, you know, particularly in the house building world, where they need the stick, they are very kind of compliance driven. They will comply with what the standards are set. There are lots of others, investors, developers who want to better than that because they're more enlightened. They can see value in that, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, later. I, th- yeah. I think um, I was just going to say very quickly as well. I think what's interesting is the sort of role reversal that's happening. Uh, as Gavin says, you know, there's there's still quite a lot of ignorance around climate change, especially amongst old older people. So there's a kind of role reversal where you know the historic model is we impart our knowledge, you know, back to the younger generation. But I think it's actually the other way around now. I think it's younger people are much more informed. Uh, you know, as I'm sure Gemma and Nicola tell us, much more informed about climate change than, you know, some of the um, some of the more experienced people in life are. So it's interesting, you know, it's how they can start to, I think, educate some of us about the importance of climate change and what it means, especially to them. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks. Had, go for it. No, no please, I just had another it. point. It was like, there is the benefit of the social media aspect, but there's also the people who are constantly posting more fake news towards it and, like, saying, oh, it doesn't exist, which does kind of also can tarnish some of the views of us younger generation as we are so susceptible to seeing all the things like that so obviously we are able to take on that information very very easily so there's also that aspect of people trying to just different demographics really trying to voice yeah. their opinions to us to try and change how we view certain like aspects of like society in a way i, I, I can see that and and uh, people can be swayed but i think um I, i've again been encouraged by you know companies like Emily's and others in that same field. And I, I try to do this as a developer. I try to be more open and, and kind of be more purposeful and set out what our, our aims are and our, our objectives, really. Historically, with industry, there's been a tradition to kind of not say very much, not be on social media, not and, and put out really dry and stunted press releases. Those days are gone. You know, um, you can walk past a development site of mine, take some photographs and tweet about it, put it on Facebook, you know, TikTok, whatever. You know, just because I've not got a presence on, I, I have, but because other people haven't got a presence on that, it doesn't mean people aren't talking about them. It's almost ignorance there. So I think we need to be more accountable. I think without being, without virtue signaling, you know, but I think it's really important that people want to people want to see what who your values are now. I think I think the customers are becoming a bit more discerning. I think you know where you're buying your clothes, where they're sourced, all that sort of thing. I think that will translate to buildings as well. Yeah. And I think in in particular, what I find really encouraging is that young people are holding us to account. I know you yeah. shouldn't have to, but that movement mm-hmm. that is growing. Everyone talks about future leaders. No, you guys are the current leaders. You are holding these <laughs> industries, these big companies to account. And I, for one, we just need more of that. And the, the literacy of young people and understanding sustainability is far, far greater, as Barry and Gavin have both said. And I think there's a real opportunity for, for you guys just to educate us, really, on how we can better communicate these topics. I think I think picking up on that, Emily. I think it's about making these concepts quite simple. You know, um, I don't I don't know what you girls think, but I think having simpler messages would help, really, because some of these subjects are quite complicated, aren't they? Yeah, hundred percent. I know we learn about most of the basics in like some of our lessons that we do, for example, in science or geography, but the overall 
like I had to do a lot of research into COP26 because I've never really looked at it before. And some of the things that were coming up, I was like, I don't know what some of these things mean. Um, but I know 100% the more simpler versions to make, so even the younger years, like the primary school children or like any of us, um, be more aware. Do you want to add to that? I was going to say, you said something about uh, younger generations being more susceptible to change, especially like surrounding climate change. I think that would be mainly because we kind of grew up in an environment where it was so commonly talked about, like the deadline is 2050 and that's being pushed back, not in an optimistic way that, oh, it's, we can reach that. I'm sure we can, but because the deadline is coming to the edge and we do need to achieve that as soon as possible, COP26 needs to be talked about so much more. It's the type of thing people understand what it like references or talks about, but it needs to be, this is what's being said and this is what we're trying to achieve. What can we do to achieve it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one example, because obviously people quite rightly think about this being a global issue, but one practical example would be in the built environment is around flood risk. And uh, I'm sure Barry will be very aware of this, but the, the the way that the Environment Agency are changing the flood risk levels now in our towns and cities, I mean, a lot of our towns and cities will flood in the next 100 years. And a lot of people don't know that and don't realise that. But when we're designing new spaces and places and things, we have to anticipate that. But what that is a real challenge then, because what you do for the other kind of 99 years when it's not flooding, you just have kind of buildings on stilts that look really ugly. So there's some real practical challenges now uh, around that, which we've got to try and come up with some creative solutions as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that, Gavin, actually. And I think, I think it's, I think people, when people look at COP26 and, you know, there's a, there's a headline that says, you know, leaders are committing to cutting methane by 30%. To, to most people, that doesn't mean a thing to their actual everyday life. And it's trying to, you know, uh, I think make that connection to say it actually does mean something. It's this. Because uh, I think most people just, or many people just still walk around, I think, with ignorance a little bit about what well, that's still, I'm not too bothered. That still doesn't, you know, still, still not going to affect me, is it? But it actually will on a daily basis. And we're seeing that more and more. And it's just trying to, I suppose, be educate about that link between those high you know those high level things that get agreed at things like COP26 and actually what that means on a daily basis to people yeah well, sorry Lucy I was just going to say that you know that's a, a great point and I was just interested we talked about the high level um, ambition and what needs to happen with climate change but I was just interested with Nicola and Gemma and what they would want to see the development industry prioritise. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about their voices being heard, but what is it for you that's important? Um, for me, um, more affordable energy, because there's so much we can do, for example, in school and in like other scenarios. Like, but in our homes itself, there's nothing that well, we really talk about that um, we can do. So, like, solar panels, etc., and they are very expensive. Like, you get the thing through, it's like £5,000, and it's like, um, at this moment, we can't afford this. Like, not many of the everyday people can. And it's a way of trying to implement that into society so that it is more achievable for everyone to maybe have access to. And not maybe everyone will have them, but um, we have access to them. So, do I add to it? Yeah, a point that I would make uh, for me would definitely be, and it's talked about so much and should be, uh, plastics, microplastics, and how we're going to reduce them. You see in like supermarkets and you have like chicken on black wrapper, that can't be recycled, but they put it on a black casing because it looks more appealing for someone to buy. There's no point something being appealing and then sitting in waste for how many years, how many hundred years. You need to be realistic about these types of things because it goes away. It's, um, 
polystyrene or anything. But just. No, that's a, that's a really good point about um, that's a really good point about uh, uh, wastage. Uh, so, for example, uh, the construction industry uh, uh, works on the base of about ten percent waste. So, if, if you think about, it, you've got all that waste together. You could probably you could probably build a small town with it every year with all the waste that that is used. Hundred percent. So, we need to find ways of eliminating that. I mean, fuel poverty is a huge thing, uh, uh, certainly. So, um, but I mean, I, I mean, I develop new homes and I develop new workspace and things, but there's a huge issue with kind of the existing housing stock and how we address that. And I think, I think there's a group of, um, architect designers in London launched a guide a few weeks ago that, that, that gave a variety of methods about insulating houses. I think they typically said the average property about £90,000 or something to, to insulate, which is a huge amount of money, isn't it? And Savills have um, produced a report recently. They've estimated it's 330 billion to retrofit 29 million homes. So there's a, there's a lot to do. But then, put that into context, global real estate is worth 280 trillion. Yes. So the money is there. It's going to be how we channel it to the right places. It, it does exist. Yeah. But just picking up something that was said earlier, you know, we don't want to be replacing these lovely timber slash windows with plastic window frames, do we? You know? <laughs> so so that, that's the kind of checks and balance we've got to think about, I think. It's that whole life carbon point in terms of thinking about how much energy and um, carbon is going into the building over its whole life cycle, not just in development, not just operation, but bringing it all together. Yeah, I think also, I think, you know, I suppose I would say this is a sort of urban designer and master planner, but it's just, you know, in terms of priorities for the development industries, it's also tr trying to convince people about the benefits of net zero. It's not just about energy and cost you know it's actually about place making as well there is a benefit in place making you know in creating places people want to live in accessing daily needs easily by walking and, and cycling um you know uh, creating attractive green spaces and open spaces with its own um, health benefits you know creating flexible places that people that fit the way people now live and work so it's all those it's, it's the sort of whole story isn't it that it's not just about um, you know, PVs and air source heat pumps. There's actually a huge benefit to trying yeah. to get to zero to the way that we live and the way that we create places. I completely agree with that, Barry. And I think also in that area, it's thinking about how you do that through a just transition as well and how you bring in young people into that conversation about designing their places. I mean, Gem and Nicola, what, what kind of place do you want to live and work in? I mean, we, we talk about let's make it easy to walk, cycle, etc. But what, what, what kind of is that what you guys want? You know, what's your view? A hundred percent. I think there's some sort of funny stereotype that British people tend to walk everywhere anyway. All weathers as well. doesn't matter anything. The rain doesn't face them. We're just walking. Um, yeah, to increase that, and I think it's something that we already do amazing, but to have better access to transport. Uh, like, you look into London, you have the Santander bikes. Um, I was looking, and there's over 12,000 bikes that are available, and all kind of docking stations are only 400 metres apart. So even if you're not using there are other options. Um, and just to have those available, so especially, like, younger people that we're growing up, to have those, like, access to that is incredible. 
Um, I completely agree. And I just feel like the green spaces, because not only are they beneficial, but they're also a quite a good environment to be in, especially for our studying, just having that green space, being able to sit, relax, and be able to just kind of consolidate what we've done, but also it's good for the environment at the same time. And yeah. just, um, especially in like our town and St. Albans, like, oh, there's not really any green spaces necessary throughout the town. Obviously, there's a big park next door. But like throughout there, I feel like there could be a bit more done to make it a bit more environmental friendly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, often with development, the spaces between the buildings don't get considered very well. Um, but the challenge is that, you, uh, you know, people like barrier kind of artists and creatives. And then you come across highways, which is a very engineering focused kind of solution. So you do have that clash and it is a technical process. But I think we need to be freer with the way we look at that, the spaces between buildings. Absolutely. And we need a layering of different types of, of space. Some need to be you know, just literally green space where you can make as much noise as you, you want to, or it needs to be more intimate space where it's quiet and more reflective. I mean, it's a real challenge when in development as well, because people say we want we want playgrounds, but sometimes residents don't want playgrounds next to their homes. Um, no, it's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I think just what um, Nicola and Gemma were saying there about green space, and thanks for your points, Gavin. Just lastly, just really interested to hear about does net zero generate value or is it just a cost? Emily, I don't know if you want to jump in on that from your investment angle. We're linking it back to green space and nature. When we're thinking about net zero, it can't just be about energy. We've got to make sure we're designing buildings with green roofs, you know, thinking about how you're using nature to adapt to climate change, whether that's the putting in ponds in places um, or blue roofs. There's lots of different ways that you can do that. Whether it is a value or cost, to me, it's a bit of a... a almost a non-argument because unless you upgrade your buildings you will not get any value because you will not be able to rent them out and they won't be attractive and if you live in them then they won't be a comfortable home so it, it doesn't matter we have to and the investment needs to follow that and i think it is yeah i mean it sounds it sounds horribly cheesy for me to say this um and, and by the way i went on my first electric scooter the other day that was quite an experience Oh, they still illegal, Barry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're illegal or something. <laughs> Electric scooters, yeah. yeah I don't know. Um, there's plenty in Bristol anyway. So, um, but what I was going to say was, it sounds really cheesy to say it, but um, you know, it depends how you define value, I suppose. You know, financial value, yes. The, the, you know, the jury's still out, and I think yes, it probably does in terms of housing. You know, there's it probably does cost more. You know, financially. Uh, I think, uh, to, to get towards net zero and the measures that you have to stick into a house. But I think for me, it's actually the value is really about the sort of social and environmental value of, of the climate change and net zero or tackling climate change. You know, people are walk, people walking and cycling more, the open spaces, the parklands, the woodlands we can create. You know, these are the, these for me are the points of value. And being, you know, we're seeing a lot more now, actually, especially in some of the bigger developments we do about, you know, almost about being a local. You know, having that, you know, walking to where you need to go on a daily basis to get to know your neighbour. You know, we're, we're creating rules for neighbourliness in some of the things we do now, which is actually quite an interesting concept. But, you know, you, you know being able to get to know your community better. And I suppose just, just generally, you know, being, you know, perhaps fitting into the sort of health and well-being agenda. 
So, you know, that to me is a huge value, you know, the benefit of people are being in touch with nature because they can just go over the road and they're into a, a nice green space. But I think it's those things really. It's the social environmental value, I think, is is potentially, you know, the, the, the greater impact than the financial value. Yeah, I think, well, we, we can't afford not to really, can we, Barry? <laughs> to be honest no. with that's the um, light, what, Gavin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, creating smarter, healthier workspace is something I've been doing for a number of years. And I've tend to use a, a, an accreditation tool called Briam. Um, so Briam Outstanding. I've done two Briam Outstanding buildings. Um, and then there's lots of different accreditation systems. I think it's one of the challenges is finding the ones that, that kind of work. Um, but I've proven that developing smarter, healthier workspace does attract um, higher rents, does attract um, better occupiers. When those bills are then sold to pension funds, they pay more money for that. So there is evidence in that. What I've found a frustration looking in the residential sector, that I have not really seen real evidence of that. And, and the challenge, particularly in the residential sector, is about affordability. So if we keep piling costs onto the construction costs of houses, then it means the houses are more expensive to sell. Well, they're not, because the problem is the land price is too high. We need to we need to accept that we have to have more affordable land so we can pay more for the construction, but make sure that the price of the property, whether for rent, for sale, affordable housing, whatever that is, doesn't go up, because that's the challenge. And we don't want to end up in a situation where people have got money can afford more sustainable house. People who haven't have got less money can't, and then their bills are more. Because fuel poverty is a real issue. Well, thank you very much. We are um, at the end of our session now. So, um, really enjoyed listening to that conversation. And it just remains to me to say thank you very much to all of you, for to Gemma, Nicola, Emily, Gavin and Barry for taking the time to contribute to our podcast. Um, so, thanks very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Go you well. very much. It's been great.